If you would, turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the third chapter of John's Gospel. John's Gospel in chapter 3. We'll commence our reading there at verse 22. John 3, and starting there at verse 22. Once again, hear the word of the living God. These things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to to whom thou bearest witness, behold the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all, and he that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Amen. And may the Lord bless us under the public reading of his word this morning. Well, we continue this final public testimony that John the Baptist gives to Christ prior to his imprisonment. Uh, Though John will be preaching afterward, uh, this really is the final inscripturated part of his public ministry before captivity. And what we saw before was the occasion for this testimony was something of a question. It was something of a question because, in fact, it was more an accusation than anything. You remember that there was, as it were, a a new kind of friendship between the disciples of John and the unbelieving Jews. The friendship was struck because they, they would argue. 
they would argue that Christ was somehow usurping the, the ministry of John the Baptist, that, that he was somehow taking heirs to himself that were not his. Well, as we saw last Lord's Day morning, John, John issues them a well-merited rebuke. There from, verse, there from verse 27 down to verse 30, John shows very pointedly that the ground of their thinking was entirely mistaken. And that, in fact, it was necessary and right that John's ministry would be eclipsed by that of Christ. That John's name would diminish among men and that Christ's would be lifted high. Well, this morning we take up verses 30 to 36, where in one sense that rebuke is continued. But we also need to remember that, that this is more giving us an opportunity to see the grounds or the basis for the rebuke than anything. Here, John the Baptist shows why it's quite necessary, demonstrates through argument why it should be so that John should diminish and Christ be exalted. And as we look at this text, you'll notice that that really is the point. He's demonstrating very reasonably And not only does John delight that this is so, but it's altogether reasonable that it is so. In other words, as we look at verse 30, one could easily interpret this as being the urgency or the necessity of reason. He must increase, but I must decrease. And to demonstrate the rationality behind that statement, verses 31 to 36 show us the unparalleled preeminence of Christ. John has rebuked them for their wrong views of Christ. And now he seeks to show them the exalted Savior whom they've not seen truly. He does this in a striking way. He does this really in a way that could be divided into two separate sections. As you start from verses 30 and 31, you'll notice that John there makes something of a personal contrast between himself and Christ. The one who must decrease and the one who must increase. The one who is earthly and the one who is from above. Who is, as he says here, to be above all. But then as you come to verse 32, you'll notice that he stresses that this Christ has knowledge, but uniquely, He is a first-person witness to his own preaching. In verse 32, the end of that, you have the arraignment of unbelief, where John says that, that to disregard his testimony is, while very common, certainly not lawful. And then verse 33, he gives us a commendation of faith. Now, what's striking about that is that you have that same pattern repeated for us in the verses that follow. You have something of a contrast in office in verse 34. In verse 35, you have the uniqueness of Christ's ministry. Verse 36, you have the commendation of faith. And at the end of verse 36, you have the arraignment of unbelief. And so John, as it were, seems to be orbiting. This general idea, that the preeminence of Christ, but he does so very methodically. And one must ask why. 
Well, friend, as you look at verses 30, 31 and 34, you'll recognize that John, he's speaking very specifically about the Lord Jesus. In verse 31, he's speaking about the person of Christ, who Christ is as the eternal Son. And when you come to verse 34, he speaks of Christ as he is the sent one, as the one who is Messiah. And so John thinks of the person of Christ, and he thinks of the offices of Christ, and he says as he meditates on both themes, both demonstrate that Christ must increase and John must decrease. And all of that teaches us, friend, is is this, that Christ's person and office demand the hearing that he received. In other words, friends, we apply it to ourselves. Christ's person and office demand man's faith. And I want us to see that under three headings this morning. I want us to look at the cause that John provides for us. Why this demand is so. The character of the faith that is required. And then the final charge that John leaves with his disciples. So take first of all the cause. Why is this demand so? If you look at verse 31, again we find the words, He that cometh from above is above all. And he's, of course, he is here speaking of Jesus Christ. But then he makes the contrast with himself. He that is of the earth is earthly. Now, friend, if you remember just verse 30, this is supposed to be further explication of what John meant. It stood to reason that he who is from heaven should be above all, should increase, while he who is of the earth, namely John, should remain below him. Christ alone should be exalted. And friend, what John is doing here, it's quite profound. He is saying that there is an ontological difference between him and Christ. There is a difference in essence between the person of Jesus and John the Baptist. Friend, I can't stress that enough to you this morning. Because John here very evidently knows the one of whom he was preaching. He is not speaking here. John is not speaking here of a greater prophet only. You recognize that. He's not speaking here of somebody who, who will preach like John, but just better. He says, this one is from heaven. This one is from heaven and he is to be above all. And I, though though as the word of God teaches us, the greatest of the prophets, he is nevertheless earthly. Friend, it's a staggering contrast that John the Baptist makes here. We'll meditate that on that deeper, but, but I want to move to verse 34, because not only does John ground this obligation in, in the ontology of Christ, the being of the, of the divine person of Christ, but he also grounds it upon Christ's office. You remember in verse 34 we read, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. And then this, For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The pronoun there refers to Christ as verse 35 confirms it. And so the meaning, friend, is this. 
that it's necessary for Christ to be exalted. Why? Because God sent him. Now, friend, you and I, we are to recognize that when we hear the sending language of the Son, when God has said to send the Son, and then further, when God has said to give something to the Son, you are to recognize we're not speaking there about the eternal glory of the Son of God. That is, His natural glory. And why is that? Well, because His essential glory can neither be added to nor taken away from. And, and it, likewise, the sending of the Son belongs to the office of Redeemer. And so what does John say in verse 34? He says very pointedly that this Christ is not only the one from heaven, but he was also vested with an office. And his human nature communicated grace through the ministration of the Spirit to accomplish that work, which no other could do. And so, friend, there arise, there, sorry, arise our obligation. The cause is from the glory of Christ's person and his, his office. The demand upon you and I to believe, John traces back to these great themes. And friend, as we meditate on these things together, I'll just remind you that the purpose of these statements is to remind his disciples and reinforce for them what he gave them in verse 30. John indeed must decrease because it's altogether reasonable that Christ and he alone will be exalted. Briefly, I want to meditate friend, on how John presents to us the essence and the office of Christ's person. And, and I want you to notice also, friend, the demand that he attaches to both, to both themes. When we think about the divine person of the Son, friend, it's important for us to keep before us just how the Scriptures present these truths to us. The divine person of the Son, again, as, as we think even along the lines of the language given to us in our formularies, he was equal, is equal in power and in glory as one of the three persons of the blessed and adorable Trinity. As he is a divine person, there is no gradation of power or glory within the Godhead. He is no less glorious than his Father. And friend, you're to recognize that as we take up this text. When we talk about the Son as He is from heaven and above all, you're to recognize, friend, that we are referring there to the very one the Apostle says, for whom all things were created and by Him. We're talking here about the eternal Logos who we encountered at the beginning of John's Gospel. And friend, John the Baptist draws our attention, focuses our attention upon the glory of this one. I suppose that's the hardest task of any preacher. To direct our gaze in the same way. Friend, I would submit to you that this is one of the great challenges. One of the greatest challenges that you and I have. Is really to rest on this theme and to do so in a way that makes this argument make all the more sense to us. I'll come back to what I mean by that in just a moment. But the point, friend, that I would drive home here is that in this, this 31st verse, here John is referring to a glory that is not derived, it is not given, 
it is intrinsic to the divine son. It is his by nature and so from eternity. And friend, as you think of this, it does also drive us to think then also what you find in verse 34. As glorious and as as blindingly glorious as verse 31 is, verse 34, as it were, sets before us yet another picture of glory. We're told here that he was sent by God. Now, friend, do you remember that that Christ was even called the apostle of our faith? And, and, And that's the idea that he was the sent one. He was vested with the office of Redeemer. And and friend, as you look at this, you're to recognize that that of of itself is a glorious thing. That he held that office as something of glory. And and friend, one of the ways we can think of that is one of the ways it's suggested to us by John Owen. The fact that he was willing to be sent gives to us a picture of the glory of the divine person who went. What Owen writes, I think, is quite useful. He says this, he says, Wisdom, the grace, the love, the condescension that was in this choice of the Son and that animated every act, every duty of his obedience rendered it amiable in the sight of God and useful to us. What Owen's saying there is, as you look at at the fact that Christ was willing to go, yes, that he was sent, but that he was willing You see there an exhibition of, of again, the wisdom, the grace, the love, the condescension that is in the eternal Son. And so, friend, even looking at Him as He simply takes the office, you and I are to see their glory. But then John goes further. He says, and in this office God gives Him the Spirit, but not by measure. Now, in its immediate context, how would we understand that? How might John's disciples understand such a statement? Well, certainly the idea of a prophetic office would lead one to interpret these words along the lines of unction. In other words, that that here John is referring to the fact that Christ was filled specially with, with the spirit of revelation, unlike any other that came or preached before him. And certainly that's true, but but we need to move further. John is certainly speaking of the preaching ministry of Christ, but, but you recognize that he's speaking here of Christ in the fullness of his work of redemption. And he says in that regard, friend, Christ had all. The Spirit was poured upon him without measure. Now I know we've we've meditated on this before, but friend, the sense is that here John is giving us a picture, a theological, a theological explanation, if you will, of, of what it is for the Son of Man to, to be filled and furnished so as to accomplish the work of redemption. The Spirit, as it were, is poured into Him without measure. We're not speaking here about the divine essence. We recognize that. This giving of the Spirit can only belong to His humanity. And so what John is speaking of here are those graces that were given to Christ that were truly furnishing him for the work of redemption. And in that way, friend, you have a picture of glory as well. Because here you see that the second Adam certainly eclipses Adam the first. Friend, Adam was created in innocence. 
He was created without sin. But nowhere do we read that he had the Spirit without measure. The graces that were given to the humanity of Christ were of, were of a greater sort, infinitely higher, to accomplish our redemption. And we go further. Uh, friend, what you and I are supposed to understand here is that the graces that were communicated to his human nature, and this should make us marvel and should, worship, should lead us to worship, the graces that were communicated to his humanity through the ministration of his spirit were simply the graces that were in the eternal logos. Friend, if you meditate on that, then all the more the glory of Christ shines forth. Even the glory that we see in the graces that came upon his human nature were from the eternal person of the Son. What's the point behind all of this? Well, friend, we can't divorce any of these statements from its context. And so we recognize that John is making an argument. All of these things are actually to defend the hearers that left the ministry of John and that went and attended the ministry of Christ. It's a staggering thing because John here says they did the right thing. They they did the most reasonable thing that they could. They left my ministry and they've run to Christ. It's a staggering thing because you remember John's disciples were accusing Christ of stealing his audience and John turns around and defends the audience for going after Christ. And all because the glorious Christ that they are hearing. He demands their hearing. They ought to go to him. My friend, as we, as we do come to a close, I, I want to meditate briefly on what else John gives to us here. He tells us in verse 33 something of the character of, of faith. Now, he says in verse 33 that what he, that is Christ, hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. And the sense there, friend, is that Christ is a unique witness to the truths that he preaches. A prophet will hear through revelation by God, and he will hear hear through the ministration of the Son, and so preach. In fact, as Peter reminds us, all of the prophets spoke by the Spirit of Christ. But when you look at verse 33, you and I recognize something, that Christ preaches, but from a very different point of knowledge. J.G. Voss writes, I think quite helpfully here, that this text reminds us that though it is the case that Christ is our final prophet, he is a unique prophet entirely. Because the revelation that he preaches, friend, it comes from the knowledge of the eternal Son. It comes from his own divine person. And no prophet could ever say that of himself. John and Christ might seem like similar preachers, but John recognizes when he, Christ, preaches, he preaches from knowledge that he has as the Logos that is communicated to him through the ministration of the Spirit. He is a unique prophet, truly. But then what do we make of those who follow him, who hear that preaching? John says this, 
He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. Now what you see in this text then is this idea that faith is something of a sealing or a contractual thing. And that's what John says when he looks at those who are hearing the ministry of Christ, when he looks at those who have left his to follow the preaching of the Savior, he says there he sees something of a contract being formed. A seal being set. And friend, what is that seal indicating? That God is true. What this teaches us about faith, friend, is this, that faith faith in Christ is a formal assent to the truthfulness of God. That's precisely how John the Baptist presents it to us. And what John does here is he looks at the hearing, the the joining of the bride and the bridegroom together in this moment. The, the, The church, as it were, seeming to gather around Christ. He takes that here symbolically as true belief. And he says it's as though they have signed the contract. A friend, what was true in the first century is true in the 21st century in this regard. This is precisely what faith is today. When God comes in the gospel, speaking through his Son in his word, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. That, as it were, is the body of the contract. But in its promulgation, it's as though the paper has been given to you. The pen in your hand. Asking simply whether or not you'll sign it. Will you fix your name to it? Trust that God who is offered has offered genuinely and that he is true. When John the Baptist looks at those who are thronging Christ, he says they've signed the contract. And friend, as you look at this text, just briefly, not only is John urging that it's reasonable because of the glory of Christ's person and office that they submit to his ministry. But doesn't he also show how easy a thing in one sense faith is? Yes, it's impossible for the natural man, but look at what he calls faith. He says it's simply assenting to the fact that God is true. It's simply saying that the God who cannot lie and and who now offers me redemption in Christ must indeed be true to His Word. And so how reasonable is it for men to flee to Christ? How reasonable is it for them to go to the all-glorious Son, the all-glorious Redeemer, and simply say that the God who cannot lie is true? Again, friend, you hear the, the John the Baptist, as it were, being the chief apologist for those who have fled his ministry and who now surround Christ. But thirdly and finally, friend, this text leaves with a charge. And it's a staggering one. He says, He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. Now, as you look at this text, what you see here is John is tacitly berating the disciples that are before him. 
It's a striking thing, isn't it? Because John has given every argument for why folks should run away from his preaching and to sit under Christ's. And now he turns to the disciples that have lingered with him, the ones who seem to be a picture of loyalty. And he says, so long as you remain with me and so apart from Christ, you will not see life. Moreover, the wrath of God abideth upon you. It's a staggering thing. But friend, what this teaches us is that unbelief is a dangerous and heinous sin. The glory of Christ's person and office, it demands faith. And when that demand is not met, John tells us very pointedly, that man, that woman, is in inexplicably dangerous, incredibly wicked transgression. Faith, he describes here, is setting seal to the truth. So what then was unbelief? Well, friend, in this, ta- in this case, John is clearly indicating that he is looking at unbelief as quite the opposite of setting one's seal to the fact that God is true. Here, John arraigns unbelief as it would call God a liar. And he says here that as men and women continue to engage in this high-handed sin, as they continue to stay aloof from the contract, as it were, hesitate to sign, because they doubt the one who made out the terms. He says, forever, as it were, this wrath abides. And it abides. The sense is, friend, it dwells with them. It stalks them wherever they go. It hangs over them and, re- and remains with them closer than their shadows. That's the kind of language that John is using here. And friend, as you look at the scriptures, you see this idea it, through various images. The scriptures deploy so many images to communicate to us just how dangerous it is to remain in unbelief. Just to give you a few examples, take what you have there in Deuteronomy. He says here, their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Know what Moses is saying. He's saying those who remain aloof from the covenant, the wrath of God so abides upon them, it is as it were, it's stalking them. As it were, it's closing distance between them and itself, chasing them throughout life. Friend, what would you do? How would you feel if you felt that you were being stalked by someone, an avowed enemy who only intended your destruction, who night and day watched your steps, watched you and you're going out and you're coming in? Friend, that's the idea that the Scriptures say the unbeliever is faced with so long as they remain out of the city of refuge so long as they remain outside of Christ. There, Moses says, their feet have been set on a slippery place, as it were a place that's about to go at any moment. And in Psalm 73, it's the same thing. Thou didst set them in slippery places. To stand just for a moment. But at any moment, it's all going to come crashing down. Friend, the horrific picture that John gives to his disciples here should penetrate our core. 
This is, a, this is a wrath that stalks, that chases, that casts shadows over men all their lives. And as Moses says, it makes haste. But what does all of that say with regard to our, our, our immediate context? Well, friend, the point that John is driving home is that they are to attend Christ's ministry. They are to rest in him. And the idea, friend, is that these ones are especially guilty if they don't. What do I mean? Well, friend, if you, look, if you remember back to what we read in Hebrews 1 and 2, I said there was a single argument that was being made. And the argument was that in this time, After the coming of Christ, while unbelief was always inexcusable before, always a heinous sin before, after the greater revelation we receive after the Christ's first advent, it becomes all the more aggravated in its guilt. And that's what John is saying. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 1 and 2. Just to remind you, In Hebrews chapter 2, he says, you know, if the transgression of those who heard the revelation that was given through angels, no, that's a reference to the giving of the law, if you collate that with Acts 7 and Galatians 5. What the writer there is saying is, if it was a a heinous sin to refuse revelation as it came through Moses, he says, how much more is it so? For those who have received it after Christ's first coming. Received it from the hand not of a servant. But from the son of the house. As it were in in one sense friend you could say. That those who have heard the gospel now. In the new covenant. Well friend their, their guilt is of a greater kind. And if you will the wrath the wrath that hangs over them runs all the more quickly as they refuse what has been offered them in Christ. We take all of this together, friend. The first point of examination is, do we make conscience of unbelief? We make conscience of so many sins. But of unbelief, do we? Here, the scriptures are very clear. Without faith, men hesitate to set their seal that God is true. Without faith, men then justly are under an abiding wrath. Do we make conscience of unbelief? But the second point, friend, and this is one that that really looks at the entirety of the two passages we've looked at uh, this morning and, and last Lord's Day morning. And that is, what is the glory of Christ to you? I want us to look at John the Baptist just for a moment longer here. And I want you to see that as John thinks about himself, and as he thinks about his own ministry, he, he makes no qualms about any, any kind of diminution that may come to him through Christ's exaltation. In fact, he rejoices in it. Because he so understands the glory of Christ. He has such a high thought of the Savior. 
that it's existential to him. He is genuinely pleased if his name is diminished and Christ exalted. Friend, how often do we think of the glory of Christ? I I would argue, friend, that we don't get to the point that we find John arriving at without making this our daily meditation. Just to give you an illustration of what that looks like outside of our text. Do you remember Psalm 57? It's a staggering psalm because it's one that, that shows us the psalmist in extreme difficulty. He's in the cave, likely of Adullam. He fled from Saul. And it begins with a plea, be merciful to me, O God. All of that stands to reason. Then I want you to notice this. He says, my soul is among lions. Verse 4, verse 5, he says, be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Verse 6, they prepared a net for my steps. Verse 7, O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. He goes from his affliction to the exaltation of God seamlessly. And friend, evidently it's because he is possessed of the same spirit as was John the Baptist. In the midst of affliction, do you and I meditate on the glory of our God? Do we long for the exaltation of Christ? Can we go from one moment pleading for mercy and in the next pleading for his exaltation? Friend, that's what this text would drive us to. As we close, friend, for the believer, those who have set their seal to this contract, here John says, they have everlasting life. I don't think we meditate on that much, but we need to. What he's saying is that eternal life that is offered in Christ is something that has begun now. And friend, the substance of that eternal life is not just longevity. It is the experience of enjoyment of God. The fruition of God that was forfeit in the garden that Christ has won again. He says in the moment that they have set their seal, the seal, their seal to the gospel, they have everlasting life. Friend, do you realize that your eternal life has begun now? if you've laid hold of Christ by faith. You're not waiting for something to begin. You're only waiting for something to increase upon death. And that's what John says. It's begun already, if you have indeed rested in him. And so as we close, friend, the exhortations are to believe. That is the overarching exhortation from this text. To run to him. To flee to Christ and him only. It's the only reasonable thing to do. The the glory of Christ's person and His office demanded it. And friend, the danger in not doing so has been spelled out so clearly for us by John the Baptist. And so believe. Sign, as it were, friend, the contract. But there's also an exhortation to mimic, to follow John the Baptist and how he thinks of the glory of Christ. Friend, only those who have truly set their seal in this way, can say from the heart that it's their joy 
that in their decrease Christ is exalted. And friend, then the exhortation too, if you have this everlasting life begun, your calling now is to pray for more and more of its enjoyment. To put aside those things that would mitigate against it. And to strive more and more. Even if God, if God permits, giving you a glimpse of eternal glory. Even before. Even before the time. Friend, all of this should drive us to think much of the glory of Christ's person, his office. And also the greatness of the redemption that he has wrought for us. Amen.